0: Listening to Burn and Return, a weekly one hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turf grass
1: industries. With
0: the DJ Scratch, you know what that means. Uh, that means it is time for another episode of of Burn and return.
2: Look, we have we. It just there. Listen, I I was. I was. I just had a moment there. I had a flashback, Matt, to the old Turfs Up Radio days where we couldn't see you as you did your shows, and you used the dramatic pause, maybe a little too much. You you maybe have overdone all the dramatic pauses, and you'd be like, "Oh shit, did my internet drop? Oh, is something wrong? Did the nukes hit Matt? (laughs) Right." Have, did they have him? Did they have him pinned down? I mean, listen. If the if China re- releases, boys, the feds are burst, outside my windows and they're yeah. about to <laughs> they knock on put, my door. They just <laughs> put a steel chainsaw right through my fiber line. I'm going down, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to you right now on the sat phone in my cave. I mean, you coming in? <laughs> it's getting
0: real weird out here, guys. Someone help me. Yeah. Listen, th- this is Search completely
2: rescue, unrelated. Please.
0: To- Search and rescue.
2: I know that they've got like you know all the prepper shows and everything like that, but I wish we could do like a, a YouTube series on uh you know who's got the best bomb shelter, bug out room, like all those kind of stuff. Like uh, as, as like an HGTV thing. Like talk about it. Like not like hey, this person's po- possibly insane, right? Maybe they're a little <laughs> bit you know sane in the sense that they're getting ready for what might happen but more in the in the vein that uh you know Jeff it's a beautiful couch you have right down here uh you know 30 feet below ground you know just in case the world ends it seems like it'd be a comfortable place to die
1: uh very much if so. I need to
2: bug out
0: <laughs> I just slowly make my way over here to the corner see I'm hiding over in the corner right now I, that's why I'm coming through on one channel Pink. by the way that's a radio trick I'm not and then, and then when I need to come back from my prepper location, see, I'm back. I'm back. And uh, <laughs> I, the, the, the people hearing the recording can probably hear that. Y'all probably can't. I probably came through on both channels for you, but uh,
2: I was. You sound great. I was playing with sound my, my soundboard. Um, boys, how the hell are y'all doing, man? Hey, great to be here. Uh, we we skipped last week due to the holiday, so uh, oh, man, you know, we had a we had a lot of different articles to choose from and uh man, boy. Howdy. There's been some doozies this week and uh, Ray, uh, we've, we've got all sorts of different things. People are grieved at, you know, our industry. And I think we have more returns on this show than we've had in quite some time. So it's encouraging, oh, a right? little,
1: it's- a little bit of good news. Maybe. I mean, that's we need that right now because uh you know, the last, Six or so months has been uh, a real test. I mean, a real test of my positivity and optimism.
2: <laughs> There's only so many, uh, you know, head on your lap bedtime stories that Sheila can read before you get bored with that, you know? Find me. <laughs> exactly. You know.
0: Wait. Wait a second. Wait a second. Don't sign me up in that corner, to me. I
2: don't ever get tired <laughs> of bedtime stories. Never
0: get tired of those? All right. No, fair no.
2: enough. No, uh, and
0: it is it is nine eleven. Uh, uh, and I, you know, it, all right, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell something that's really embarrassing. So in Knoxville today, uh, there was, uh, well, over over the weekend there was a um, an air show, the Smoky Mountain Air Show, and today the and yesterday the 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 Blue Angels flew, and I was like, oh man, how perfect on for remembrance of nine eleven. You know, we we're, we're gonna watch uh, a video on YouTube with the kids. And, uh, and then we're going to go watch the blue angels fly, right? Because there's nothing, there's nothing that screams America, like making your children watch some of the most horrific content, uh, the internet has to offer. And so of course, you know, I'm sorting, uh, YouTube videos by views and it was, it was horrific. My God, I was choked up my wife is crying her eyes out as you know we're just watching the horrors of that day right and I know my kids are like what world why is dad making us watch this and then we get there and and the the blue angels take off and I and I just where I was trying to to suck it up and be tough guy in the car I couldn't suck it up anymore man there's something about those damn airplanes flying over with the loud noises and the rumbling the rumbling of the chest and uh man i just burst into tears i just started crying and my son looked at me like i was a moron and uh and it was okay it was okay though because clearly i needed to get it out of my system and uh and i did and i felt a lot better afterwards but it was it was uh it was it was wonderful
2: getting to watch
0: the blue angels on 9-11 i will
2: say that 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 does seem pretty cool if you've never seen the blue angels i highly encourage you to do so um but yeah, that uh you know, hey, we're not on turf for a second, but uh I think it's uh it's important. I you know, I, I read this article uh, a couple of days ago about how uh in the military now they're doing what you do, Matt. They are making sure that they educate soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, all that, right? Uh, Marines to understand what that day was like. Uh because now the the, the newest uh, members of those armed forces weren't even alive when that happened, right? So, you know, for the first time, it's, you know, you, you, it's fresh in, in everybody's mind who was there and everything like that and who was experiencing that. But uh, that's kind of wild to think about. And uh, so, I don't know. It, you know the, 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 I guess the thing that is always uh, kind of striking at this time is, you know, you have people that just are overcome by it and can't stand to think about it. And I get that. And then you have folks uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that have to watch everything and like kind of like just re experience the day because it helps them get through. It helps to remind them, hey, like I was there and this shit was so surreal that twenty years later, twenty two years later, or whatever it's twenty one years later that um, you know it's it's still hard to process. So hey, I, I'll say this is thanks for being a human being, number one, and, and uh, having emotions and number two being uh, humble enough to to share those with uh, your son that hey man sometimes the shit's a lot you know whether it's too much to process you're overcome with uh, gratitude because we still live in a great great country but uh, hey the kind of country that lets three unemployable assholes sit on YouTube and talk about <laughs> grass man how <laughs> fucking great is that USA <laughs> baby
0: it
3: is.
2: Told it you. is
0: hard to hard to beat, and uh, and and with that, I guess we should we should get into the to the talk here. Let's uh, let's start. Let's discuss this week's headlines. Nothing to fear here. This
2: is just. The-
0: This is just the news. And the first one here, we got a quick little headline to hit. Uh, Norway's Yara is close to acquiring Brazil's Petrobras fertilizer unit. And uh, so it goes on to say here, Yara International ASA is close to acquiring the fertilizer unit put on sale by state-controlled oil company uh, Petróleo Brasileiro, known as Petrobras. Two sources with knowledge of the matter said on Friday, Uh, Petrobras has selected Yara's bid, and the deal now needs to be approved by the company's board, one of the sources said. An announcement is expected over the next two weeks. Uh, Yara has declined to comment on market rumors. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Yara already owns five plants in Brazil and 24 mixing facility. It also owns mining and port operations. And uh, and they're just going to continue to expand in that. Now, here is why that is particularly interesting. Um, if anybody has been keeping up with the situation that's going on in Europe and the gas supply, uh, Yara has had to <laughs> shut down a lot of capacity in the EU right now. What this is allowing them to do is uh, they're now uh, able to produce 2,200 tons of ammonia and 3,600 tons of urea daily, around 20% of the urea consumption in the country. Uh, The unit is expected to be completed within two to three years. So, uh, um, oh wait, I'm sorry, I'm misreading that. Construction of the fertilizer unit within the city. um, uh, No, 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 that is right. That is right. So, Mm -hmm. basically, what... What Yara is doing is shifting production from the EU over to Latin America, and uh, and and what what an interesting way to hedge the market, right? They see long term viability in Latin America is way 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 safer than Europe. I'm not gonna. lie. I understand why. Kind of a, I I do too. But at the same, time, I get the it. The point I'm to make about this is that it that that is the piece to me that's most frightening is. You have a company that has developed their own, you know, slight take on, on Haber-Bosch, really pioneered that in Norway and is now kind of abandoning their their uh, European Union presence at the strength that it previously was in favor of Latin America. Now, part of that is to say that, you know, I'm... I, now, I guess I'm just going to go ahead and say it, it sounds like business is friendlier, uh, long-term stability, long-term viability is friendlier in Latin America than it is in the EU. What does that say? What does Yara see about the long-term viability of the EU and uh, why why they would not be expanding there and favor Latin America instead? I'll leave it at that. I, was, get it. Y'all well, I get that. it. I get uh, right.
1: it. I get it. And Long and short of it is is that I highly doubt that President Bolsonaro is going to do a green energy initiative that shuts down natural gas and oil in Brazil. I highly doubt the man is going to do something like that, whereas in Norway, it is impossible to be green enough. I mean, I, I know the political situation in, in Norway. I mean, I'm, I'm even surprised at this point that you are even allowed to have a plant or a facility in Norway that even has anything to do with natural gas or oil right now. Because it ain't a wind turbine out, out in the North Sea
0: little little gas Gazprom reference there uh yeah DeMay when when you see this I, I I don't know I start thinking about long-term implications of food security in Europe and all that fun stuff is Europe about to be so expensive that it's just impossible that's, to inhabit it
2: well that's that's what I was just gonna say there is that you know what this signals is you know follow the money right uh you're going to have, you have less raw materials, so you, you know, you're less profitable, potentially uh, less productive in that space, right, from a point of view of, of Yara. And, I mean, that's a huge signal, I would think, to say that, hey, we don't think that, one, we can get the raw materials to make the product, and, two, we're not sure that there's going to be the demand there either at the price point or that there's going to be buyers in the marketplace in such numbers that are going to support our business here, Right. So, what's that mean? That means that we're probably growing less food in the European continent, right? Number one. Number two, as Ray said, there's a shift away, right, from using natural gas for things other than heating and storing that for reserves and things like that because everybody's trying to cut Russia off, which is sort of an old other topic. Uh, it has nothing to do with cutting off Russia.
1: It
2: well, it has nothing to do with thing, cutting like, It's more to do
1: with a an environmental mandate that has been in the works long before uh Putin uh is having the shenanigans in the Ukraine right now. It's this is long before because you see this whole plan to you know cut off civilization from fossil fuels. This has been part of the plan for years now, and it's just that it's a matter of bad timing in that uh, Europe is, you know, not uh, not taking gas from uh, the Soviet Union any- or, the, you know, Russia anymore because what that means is that now with, with them unable to take the gas from Russia then the the certain sector politically has now seized on it and said see uh this is why fossil fuels are bad you know time to go back to the stone age
2: well and i think what what represents in latin america is that if you look there you know from uh, from mexico all the way down to south america you know, natural gas as a whole has been expanding its footprint and foothold as, as part of the energy matrix down there, right it, Yes, absolutely. It <laughs> looks to become the dominant energy uh mm-hmm. production uh, production measure, right over you know uh, uh, several other ones that exist, depending on where you're at in Latin America. So the point is is that you've got uh you know regulatory and political climates that are very uh, amenable to not only using and exploiting what they currently have online but adding more, right? Adding more capacity capability. So yeah, I I don't blame Yara for doing this and I think too from a um you know, cropping perspective, you're going to see that shift. So hey, it's you know, we I think we read an article about this uh several months ago where they were talking about, you know, if it's too expensive to grow in Europe They're asking, you know, the the European farmers are asking that there be tariffs placed on crops coming from South America because they won't be able to compete. Well, this is a pretty big chip that's being played right now in that uh, that storyline coming to reality.
1: It's not only about uh, the production aspect. It it is also, again, about all of the environmental mandates and... What's going to happen is essentially Europe has gone full virtue signal.
2: Well, okay, l- gone, let's be honest too. They, they, let's get real. Let's get real spicy yeah. here. Where is it easier to mm. buy off some politicians and kill some people if you don't agree with them? Actually, true. I'm not advocating however, that. I'm just saying. Read the newspaper.
1: Uh, however, uh, true story. You know how I'm forever <laughs> broken up about how pineapple production left Hawaii? Guess where they're growing all the pineapple now? Guess where they're growing it all? Uh, uh, In America? Uh, Brazil? Brazil? Brazil, yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, all the all the enviro-weenies whined and cried enough that the uh, pineapple producers said, fuck Hawaii, and... All that production, like Dole and Del Monte Pineapple, they're now in mm-hmm. Brazil. So, Ray, is, see, I you know, Ray think, is
2: still hot about it. He's still you know, hot about I, I, it. I think, Ray, there's, there's, a, there's well, a grassroots movement that we can start with <laughs> all of the hot wife swapping spouses, people, right, to bring <laughs> pineapple production back to Hawaii. They need those things, they need them. So, let's <laughs> turn those people in favor of Hawaii. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it. Let's onshore that pineapple production.
0: How did the pineapple fall into that category? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Uh, you know, I bet you
2: that there's some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, next time, listen, well, someone time.
0: in that community, if I could have the pineapple back. And he said, you couldn't earn the pineapple back. Something along the lines of that. And I was like, what does that I, mean? I don't know. And I, I was not going to ask questions. It freaked me out. Um, Canada. Hmm. Uh, speaking of speaking of going full uh, environmental force, Canada here, let's uh, let's let's really cause raise blood pressure to spike. Uh, actually, this is pretty level headed here. Saskatchewan producers asked federal government to measure fertilizer emissions by examining effective use. Uh, The Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan, APAS, has officially submitted a number of comments to the federal government addressing concerns with the proposed fertilizer emission target for 2030, strongly advocating for an intensity-based approach to measuring emissions. The goal of the reduction is to reduce nitrous oxide emissions by 30% while maintaining yields and using less fertilizer, something APAS said is easier said than done for many producers. Uh, We have seen increased fertilizer use over the last number of years, but I also believe we have seen huge increase in production. Um, When you look at the amount of nitrogen used per bushel of grain uh, produced, that correlation uh, would show we're getting good use out of fertilizer currently. Moving forward, he hopes to research from federal government that they can tell producers how to actually reduce emissions and keep production at current levels with the world relying on Saskatchewan for food. Uh, We've got to ensure that producers understand that this is an emissions reduction, not a fertilizer reduction, said Boxall. We're at the forefront of the environment. We see it every day on our land and on our farms, and we care more than people give us credit for, and we will do whatever we can that's best for the environment. In the same token, we need to ensure that we continue to produce the uh, the, the products that need to be exported around the world. Uh, and then it goes on to say, fertilizer use in Canada, Canadian farms has increased by 71%. Over the same period, fertilizer-related emissions of nitrous oxide in Canada increased by 54%. It's not exactly a one-to-one in line there. And I think the takeaway from that is uh, this final line that it says right here. For Boxall, it's all about how the government works with producers to create a plan. And the part for me that really chaps my ass about this is that Uh, It takes this group here, APAS, the Agricultural uh, Producers Association of Saskatchewan, to beg the government to say, work with us to develop a plan. So what that leads me to believe is that they still do not know where this is coming from or how it's going to be implemented or where the reductions are going to come from, what they look like, what the yield contingency is going to be on the back end. It's still total mystery. And so the growers are like, Okay, we will play by your rules, but you got to work with us to develop these rules so we can understand what we're going to get on the back back end of this. We want we want to be here for it. We want to help for it. We'd love to achieve this, but we can't figure out how it's going to happen. Can you please someone spell this out in terms that old farmer boy farmer boy here can understand? And 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 what the again I'm reading between the lines here, and I could be totally off but I've talked to enough people about this that they all kind of have the same, same mindset is who the fuck is coming up with this? And, it, and it, it's gotta be bright people. And if it is bright people share the data, show the data that's going to, 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 to show this implemented Net? at scale and what we can expect at scale. That's all.
1: You see, you that's see, all. I think what it, what it actually is, is divergent goals because as with a lot of environmental you know mandates it is all about safety at all costs never mind the grower never mind you and i uh if you and i got to starve to death tough shit because at the end of the day all that matters is the environmental mandate was complied with you see these environmentalists—they don't care. They have this narrow focus on that nitrous, nitrogen dioxide emission. They have this focus on fossil fuel consumption. They have this focus on. You know, hang on, I want to nitrate. interject
0: and say I—I I don't think it's just necessarily as simple as that. They—they they don't care. I think they're so blinded by the narrative or the dogma that they've bought into that they're not taking into consideration the long-term downstream effects of what this hard-lined policy could be. And and you can explain it to them and say, look, you're putting food security at risk. And then there's the the immediate talking point that the way they've been coached or that you read in the newspaper is, is that, well, we're either going to, Potentially put food security at risk, or the planet is going to burn down. And I think that yeah, I think that the the, the, the storyline of that if you don't do this, we're all going to die anyway, it, it creates so much exceptional fear in the mind of the extreme environmentalists that they don't see it as uh, it, 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 the, the long the long term repercussions of it are blinded by the fact that we're all going to die anyway. Does that does that make sense? So I don't think their mindset is is like let's go out and intentionally kill people through starvation. I think the mindset is is that we're going to have to get really tight out here uh otherwise we're all going to burn up due to a failed climate a climate that's that's going to run rampant and then it's going to be natural disasters that kill us anyway however it's likely to get us there first is it is food security going to hurt us first or is is natural disaster going to kill us first and i think the climate extremists right now are leaning towards the environment breaking down before we run out of food because we're not going to be able to make the transition fast enough do you see what i'm saying there
1: yeah i I see what you're saying and what what that the uh, you know, that's been my thought all along is that with a lot of these extremists, they are not, you know, even thinking about the idea that we do all of this and as I always say almost every week, Matt, who is going to have to go without? Who decides who goes without, right? And, and
0: that's a fair question. It,
1: Yeah, and that's a very fair question that I never get a good answer to, and I have yet to have one of these activists or extremists look me in the eye, tell me straight to my face, okay, Ray, you're going to have to starve. I mean, I, I have yet to have a guy tell me that, or else I also have yet to have one of these extremists tell me, you're going to have to live with pestilence and filth, okay? I mean, I've yet to have one tell me that. And the other piece of this is that even this whole climate thing is not exactly settled science. So we're talking about creating massive social upheaval in the name of a theory, and a theory that is very tainted right now, too. Demay, uh, be
0: be <laughs> a balanced perspective here. Um, uh, how much longer until until I'm I'm knocking at your door, starving to death, and uh, and you and you have to shoot me? You got to shoot me off the front porch because I'm a I'm a I'm a
2: zombie. I don't think I'll see that in my lifetime. I'll eat myself to death before that. <laughs> oh no! Um, <laughs> no. Ew! Ew! <but>, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the the there's there's a there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, I think, that takes place on both sides of this argument. But right, you have to you have to figure out who who has more to gain, right in in the long term. And I think when you when you talk about this, it's, it's like you said we should all have the same goal. How do we how do we balance out the issue of climate change, which I don't think anybody could say is settled science, right? But I think you know there there's a lot you know of of uh, red flags there that point to hey, we got to do something right. And if we don't, who knows what happens? Maybe it goes bad. And if we do, it can't hurt. But if we do stuff like this, I, I I think it will hurt. I think it will hurt to the point that we go so far, so fast, and again that whole velocity of change argument that we don't stop, and right. look around, and try to figure out what's going on and what is you know the science and the results you know, telling us. So, I think going back to that whole cognitive distance thing, it's like you know if you uh, say hey, you know the uh, we we've got to put these measures in place right to reduce emissions and do all this and that. Oh, okay, that's fine, but you know you got to work with us. Well, no, we're 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 not going to do that. We, you know, it's either this is the way we're doing it, or we're not doing it at all. And you know, a- anybody who always says, "Hey, come pry it from my cold dead fingers," I, you know, that's that's not a way to argue. That's not a way to argue or reason with somebody. You know, it's just it's it's pretty shitty. I think that we can't have a substantive conversation without people digging their heels in on this. On the flip side, I think, yeah, this is a great article in the sense that you know the, the farmers are trying to come as a group and say, "We want to work with you, we want to try and find a way, and we want to do this based on the results, right? How can we put down as little as possible but still be able to feed everybody? And again, yes. the, uh, on that side of it, you're going to have you're still going to have holdouts, you're still going to have people that are stubborn and be like, "I, I know better, I'm going to do it this way, whatever." I think that those folks can be controlled. I think on the other side of that, with with the uh, with the farmers, the people that would ante up and kick in there, it's like, wait, so I'm gonna, you're gonna teach me how to use less inputs and grow the same amount of yield. Yeah, that makes sense. It, not only from yeah. you know uh, a social responsibility you know uh, point of view, but more so from a business perspective, right? I want to do as little yeah. as I have to do to get the mm-hmm. same results. So. I think it'll be interesting to see how this goes. Um we'll we'll put this on the shit list. We'll follow along with this, see what happens. So you know see man, you do that. That is that is always my question is that with a lot of these
1: mandates, for example, the presumption is is that these growers are just using and abusing inputs to the massive detriment of the environment where my goodness, I've always known that every pound of fertilizer or herbicide has a cost associated with it. That shit ain't cheap. So I I'm especially triggered with the idea that a grower would need to be told from on high you need to cut back when most of these growers they already are using the minimum amount possible to, and get, still get the yields because this shit's expensive, you know? This stuff is expensive. It's not like they, they just throw it out willy-nilly and all is good. No, these guys are trying, as is, trying not to use more than they need to because using more than they need to cuts into their bottom line, their, their profit per acre.
2: Yeah, and and
0: I, I, exactly like Demay said, we'll keep a close eye on this and see. And, uh, and and right now, it sounds like the government trying to control people rather than the government working with people, and that's going to create people digging their heels in uh, because uh, there, there has to be some free choice employed in this and some data to, to go behind to help encourage people to exercise their free choice. And until that's shared and shown and demonstrated – uh, it's just going to be a continuous level of of f u no f u, uh, back and forth. <laughs> uh, some good news is is that a uh, University of California Riverside researcher has identified some really really drought tolerant Bermuda grass. Um, let's see here. Uh, we are uh, well. I was scrolling a little too far far down there. <sighs> here we go. Uh, the cheerleader for public enemy number one greeted me at the gates to UC Riverside's Agricultural Experiment Station with a smile and some choice words. Every time there's a serious drought, I'm in the LA Times, Jim Barrett said, only half jokingly. Why is it always a knee-jerk reaction when it's not a drought? I don't hear from you guys. I don't hear from the water agencies. Then we go through. Uh, then we go through our wasteful ways. Lawns, you're the bad guys. Everyone then says. The tall, skinny, loquacious Baird is the head of UC Riverside's Turfgrass Research and Extension Program, devoted to the study of growing and maintaining lawns. He's the only such faculty member of the University of California system, which makes him the state's Mark Twain of Turf, our LeBron of Lawns, the Ira of Grass. Uh, I had to. Uh, I asked to meet with Baird at his workplace to see uh, how he was weathering these times. As California and the American West suffered through the worst dry spell in a millennium, the municipalities are offering residents to let their grass die of thirst or rip it out altogether. A lawn evangelist like Baird seems as uh, seems as heretical a sight in Los Angeles as the Angels hat at Dodger Stadium. Uh, Baird was not only unapologetic; but he was more than happy to clap back at the haters. It's not the grass fault to continue, his words rapid and passionate. People waste the water. Government officials tell the public to water their lawns once a week. Uh, people then water for hours at a time and waste far more than they would have if they were left alone. You want to cut water use? Raise the prices. Educate. It's amazing how little is conveyed to the homeowner. Instead, it's all about we need to police you. Oh, spicy take. Yes. Uh, and so then he goes on to have uh, identified... Uh, drought tolerant to the point that it needs 50% less than water than most lawns in Southern California, soft enough to use for recreation, attractive enough for customers want to buy keeps a healthy green tone during the winter. And when most of the lawns go dormant, if we can get the state to have John lawn owner, get paid to take out his current grass and use one of ours, he let the thought linger. Uh, don't tell me that our grasses are water pigs. Don't tell me that we can't compete in that arena baird's grass cultivars right now named ucr seventeen eight and ucr tp 6 3 were selected for more than 400 hybrid hybrids the plot before us was planted last year as a final exam of source before baird felt confident enough to hit the publicity trail it's time for a close-up and then it goes on and on and on uh, uh, he has looked at all kinds of different turf grasses everything from zoysia grass to warm season to cool season and uh and he's starting to feel good about some of the things that are coming out. So. I, if there's a will, there's a way, and uh, and I, I don't. There's something about Baird here that is just really, really inspiring, and I hope the rest of the turfgrass breeders uh, are, are able to, to to take something from here, um, because this is exactly what's going to be, uh, what has to be um uh, developed in our industry if we're going to continue to move forward because the drought of the west even if it does correct it'll shift somewhere else and then you know we'll have to employ the same things they employed there to be able to survive it right and uh and if we're behind the times on that they're going to continue exactly like he says here show up and say uh the lawns are the bad guys you're the bad guys and uh and the government's going to feel the need to police their way through it instead of uh as, instead of trying to develop their way through it right so I don't know i think this is fantastic
2: stuff here so hey uh, jp go ahead and throw that tweet up real quick and let's take a look at these two bad boys this is from jim's uh twitter feed this is uh ucr turf breeding uh, on twitter so the two different varieties the ucr 17-8 and the ucr tp 6-3 uh you'll see these left and right so this is if you're listening uh on audio you can't see this but this is uh Plots of a, a whole bunch of different varieties, experimental and named varieties, right, where they're doing drought research on these. So 37 days with zero water uh, and the two plots that we're looking at of the two uh, experimentals that are going to be released here by UC Riverside look pretty damn good. And just for reference here, Ray, in the back uh, on the photo on the right, you've got the Tifway 2 has the knife sticking out of it. And uh, yes, I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's dead yet. But we're we're coffin shopping right now, you know. We're out there. You know what, uh, I, I I Ryan, I just call that Tifway two in what I call
1: commercially unacceptable condition. Okay, whereas the uh, UCR, I could take that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could imagine having that in somebody's front lawn. Whereas the Tifway two. Not so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... uh, And by the way, I have experience with how drought-resistant Bermuda grass actually is. I have some experience with it because at home, I used to maintain a stand of TIFF 328 only irrigating one time a week.
2: Mm -hmm. And... One thing to point out here, too, from a breeding perspective is, uh, you know, we, the, some people, uh, especially on the tubes, will use these two terms interchangeably. They will they will talk about drought tolerance and drought resistance, right? Tolerance just mm-hmm. means that under drought conditions, how long will it last before it just totally croaks and how well can it come back and recover, right? Drought resistance is what we saw in that photo where there is no water, right, and we're resisting drought conditions okay it's funny so. you should
1: mention that matt i mean it's funny you should mention that ryan because i hear the horse shit pulled about Zoisha to me all the time oh it is so drought uh, drought tolerant but then here's the reality a couple days without water and that Zoisha starts to look like that bermuda with the pocket knife sticking out of it is that commercially go. acceptable to you, Ryan? Would that be commercially no, acceptable? No. And, and so I hear it where, yeah, it'll green back up. Uh. It sounds like
0: the government came and clipped Ray there, uh, which uh, after after the first two articles there, I could see that see that definitely happening. Uh, one more thing to get Whoa. to in the headlines before we move on to Joe surf turf, and that is uh, Monsanto won a verdict in St. Louis County Roundup trial. So uh, the uh, this is <laughs> ah, this is where it gets interesting, right? Because uh, Monsanto has you know uh, well Monsanto Bear. Has put aside billions of dollars to settle this, and uh, but now they've won one, and if one is going to be one, I would say this might be the catalyst to see some of these huge losses of bear begin to subside. Um, so I don't know, something to keep a, keep our eye on, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Ryan, because I know you've invested so much time into this, how about we check out this week's Joe knows turf. <laughs> Ciao no stop Hi, I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today because Joe knows turf.
1: <laughs> yes, he does,
0: and we have a doozy this week. Uh, so let's let's check out what we got, and uh, I, I see a mountain of evidence over here uh, to the to, to 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 reiterate what's going to be talked about.
2: So how about you walk us through it? Yeah, and you're right. Joe does no turf, and and thank you to him. Uh, If you're just joining the program, haven't seen this before, we basically take this segment to break down some piece of content, either from social media, YouTube, something like that, and watch it and just see how accurate it is and try to give our perspective and lean in a little bit and do it in our own fun. And, uh, Matt, what would you say that is a constructively uh, criticizing way, right? 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Matt might go fool David Goggins, but that's not that's irrelevant. So. All right. It's tough. Love, Maybe tough love. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Love. I, I'm, I, I'm coaching you hard because I love you. All right. <laughs> all right. So without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and watch this video that was sent to me uh, earlier this week. And let's dive in about the subject of late season fertilization on cool season grasses.
3: One of these lawns have done the same thing every fall, every year, and it's not overseeding. Can you imagine having one of these lawns as your own? Having family and friends over on this lawn. Having your neighbors spark conversations because they need to know how you went from this to this. Because you absolutely can by doing a Mm. fall nitrogen blitz. These are messages I received from subscribers who followed my advice last year of using the fall nitrogen blitz instead of overseeding.
2: Pause. Okay, so a little bit of a backstory here. The fall nitrogen blitz, as he calls it, is not a name of his own invention. This, This term was actually coined, I believe, by our good friend... Andy, the wizard, uh, over there on the old AroundTheYard.com dot com forums, way back when, before the what lawn a forum existed. Human being. And John, <laughs> where did I say that uh, I, you know,
0: I, I thought I hit the mute button.
2: No, you you, you missed it actually. Um, but anyway, um, the way this all came to be was that you know, uh, if you didn't know him and didn't understand the website, uh, Andy was sort of like the iron fist. And what he said went, and that was sort of how it was. So he he would embark on this uh, this blitz, as he called it, to apply copious amounts of fertilizer towards the end of the year. Now, part of it was uh, billed as, you know, in keeping with some of the current research that would, had been done, uh, there's a lot of work going back, you know, all the way back into the late 60s, up through the mid-80s, late 80s, where they examined the topic of, hey, can we put out, you know, larger applications of nitrogen later into the year, say like September, October, even in November, and have good results in terms of turf uh, quality. Let's go ahead and continue to watch uh, our friend here, Lon Life, I believe his name is here.
3: Some of you are probably wondering by now, what is a fall nitrogen blitz? And why should I do this instead of overseeding? The fall nitrogen blitz is a fall nitrogen plan that professionals have used for decades to keep golf courses athletic fields, and home lawns looking great for the rest of the current growing season as well as the following year. During the summer months, our grass has gone through a ton of stress with all of the heat and drought it has endured. And once temperatures start to drop again, your grass will start to bounce back and want to recover. During this time is when we should definitely be hitting it with nitrogen to help it thicken up, recover, and store its food supply for next year. For cool-season lawns, when the air temps start to drop below 80 degrees, you know it's go time to start the nitrogen blitz. With this nitrogen plan, we'll be spoon-feeding our lawns 0.5 pounds of fast-release nitrogen per thousand square feet every two weeks for the rest of the growing season. Zapow! Do it every week if you have a really thin <sighs> lawn. By doing this, we will be thickening up our lawn and giving roots a food supply to store as carbs for the winter, which means a faster spring green-up. And a healthier lawn coming out of winter next
2: year, but there's uh, definitely a- okay. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. There's a little bit left. Let's go ahead and let him finish that part. Catch. I apologize.
3: You better be prepared to start mowing a lot, but trust me, it's going to be worth it. So right,
2: this why is the fuck I want to watch here? One more. So oh, before we get to this part is- here, before we get to this part here, uh, the whole golf course is athletic field uh, professional thing. Uh, Matt, can you uh, educate me as to what the fo- what? The- how much did you sell the fall nitrogen blitz program to your tall fescue customers uh, when you were in lawn care? What how, was that how often what did, it did it I sell it? Yeah, what was it was was
1: it was one
0: hundred and seventy three thousand dollars a fall. Uh, <laughs> that was that was what I sold it for.
2: So let me guess: nobody ever took you up on it.
0: No, I uh, and it, it, to be, I, I'm I'm going to be fair here. I never offered it either. I just <laughs>
2: listen. I did that and men, the ladies and gentlemen. That and many other things were off the menu with Matt Martin when he came to your house I, to treat your lawn. To me, I
0: never, I didn't sell it on the on the bent grass either. Like I never,
2: I didn't I, do it. So uh, again, so here I I just want to clarify this piece is that uh, from a um. From a standpoint of professionals doing this, uh, they do it in a much, much, much different way, uh, and especially when it comes to uh, cool season grasses and how late that we're going to talk about doing this. I, I think it'll be interesting. We'll get into that here towards the end of the video. So I want to hear the answer to this question. Why the nitrogen blitz instead of overseeding? Let's hear this answer, and then, Matt, I'd like to dive into this just a little bit before we talk about sure the technical whiteboard stuff.
3: Instead of overseeding. For one, it's much cheaper and a lot less work to do the fall nitrogen blitz rather than overseeding your entire lawn. Also, when overseeding, it takes multiple seasons for that grass to eventually mature into a strong, healthy strand of turf. With the fall nitrogen blitz, we'll be using your already mature grass and basically pumping it with steroids for a fraction of the cost of overseeding. If you overseed Pause. every
2: Matt. <sighs> Would you oh, consider, what? would you consider eating a balanced diet of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates to be consuming steroids? And I trust to ask you on this subject because you are my subject matter expert on uh, personal health. Uh no. Um, there's, so the there's basic lots of building things. blocks that the shit that you need to survive, you would not consider steroids. Uh that's correct. Okay, very good. All right, so. Here's the issue: is uh, hashtag fake natty, hashtag fake natty. Yeah. Hey, what's the cost to paint your lawn versus do all this nitrogen shit? Come on, let's just do that, right? All right. Uh, just so actually get the, on steroids. I don't know. Let me ask you this, Matt: Is um, how does it land with you? And I'm not saying that uh, that 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 there's a right or wrong answer here for every single situation, but uh, to not use and utilize some of the newer genetics that we have available to us as opposed to taking what might be uh, a lawn that was overseeded with good varieties a year ago, five years ago, whatever, or, you know, uh, just a, a, a dog shit lawn, right? That's really thin, sparse, doesn't look good and pump it with a whole bunch of nitrogen. Wait,
0: repeat that question. What did you just ask me?
2: Why, why would we, why, in what cases would we want to go and use superior genetics in place of just a nitrogen program we why would, is it so we would rather do that
0: 10 10 out of 10 times that that makes the most sense because uh oftentimes while it may and again i would have to work out the economics on this with the cost of nitrogen of where it's at right now applying a pound of of nitrogen every other week uh or a pound of nitrogen a month is likely not that much cheaper than than you know going out with a with an overseed rate of seed, right? Your cost of acquisition may be higher uh, on the on the front end, but as you work it all out through the end of the season, I, your your price difference is probably not that extreme. Uh, second of all, is that the the long term return on investment of using better genetics, which oftentimes require fewer inputs, uh, lower management, lower uh, pesticide inputs is going to work out in your favor as well so and and then there's a there's a big gaping hole in this whole thing that i'm feeling a little bit crazy about demay and 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 tell me is this does not apply to all grass types this does not apply to all cool season grass types what am i over am i skipping some caveats here because when i'm thinking of overseeding and I'm, what I think he's talking about as far as the grass type of stop overseeding and, and employ this, he's he's left out a key caveat to where this applies and where it doesn't apply.
2: Correct. So I think what you're trying to say is if I have a fine fescue or predominantly fine fescue lawn, for example, this would not be a very good idea, right? So, again, we're oversimplifying a little bit on uh, – not being specific about grass types and you know areas of the country, things like that. So, if you had a tall fescue lawn, yeah, this not, probably not would great. not apply. Not great, not great. Not great. So, Jay Pain, go ahead and throw up this link real quick. And this is not to to show for anybody. We don't sell seed. Uh, this is a, a, a the Alliance for Low Input Sustainable Turf. It's a it's a co-op or a group of co-op growers of seed that come together and they put this through university testing at four different sites. I know Rutgers. Purdue, and forgive me if you scroll all the way to the bottom, J. Pink. I think it's got the other two sites on there, where they show uh, where they're doing and where they're going. Maybe not. It's on the website there. Check it out. A list turf and Matt. What they do here is basically they're uh, cutting the water down. I believe to almost uh, it might be sixty percent ET. The whole protocol is actually on their website. It's it's pretty good as far as fertility goes, though. They do this as a two year trial, right? So they establish and then uh, they get a pound and a half the first year, one pound the second year, and that's it, right? So trying to grow these and then basically the ones that pass muster in terms of how they look, you know, from a turf quality standpoint, how they do on uh, disease, insects, insect resistance, all that kind of stuff is what you see here on these lists, you know. So you've got uh, different varieties or different cultivars here within uh, each species that they're saying can be maintained at a significantly lower uh, level of fertility and still look great, right? Uh, relative to what else is out there in the marketplace. So again, this is only uh, a voluntary thing. You've got several of the biggest seed growers though, Seed Research of Oregon, DLF Pick Seed, Mountain View, Landmark Turf and Native, uh, and Lebanon Turf who distributes a lot of seed as well. So some pretty good companies in there. All right, Jay Pink, let's go jump to those last four chapters of the video real quick and let's see how this kind of ends up here.
3: Because both urea and ammonium sulfate have such concentrated amounts of nitrogen in each prill, it makes things very difficult to spread across your lawn. In a perfect world, we'd be able to dissolve these fertilizers into liquid form and put it down in a backpack sprayer to get uniform coverage. But because we want to put down a lot of nitrogen at once, we just can't do that without burning our lawn or watering it in right away. So the best way that I've found to put these products down is to use a hand spreader with urea and a normal granular spreader with ammonium sulfate. You'll want to use close to the lowest setting on each of these spreaders and just go over your lawn multiple times in multiple different directions. This may seem like a lot more work than that's actually needed, but you'll definitely get the best coverage by doing it this way.
2: Pause. Okay, Uh, I just want to go ahead and refute that properly calibrating your spreader rather than running it all out over a given area and hoping it all evens up and everything like that. We got to do better than that. Ah, oh, I just I, chaps you know. my ass.
0: And let, let's explain why why that's a bad thing, is if you're just setting it to the point where it dribbles out, how are you ensuring uniform coverage, right? And what I mean by uniform coverage is, to say you make a pass across the yard, you still got material left over, you alternate directions, you go the other way, and you make two passes of the 10 you need to, to get down the, uh uh, an entire coverage of that area that you're treating but you only are able to get two passes down well you've got down the rate you needed across the entire lawn but you did not get it down evenly you got down half the rate or, or a percentage of the rate across the whole thing and then you got down a percentage of an additional percentage of rate across two passes of your backyard or front yard or whatever area it is you're treating so The point is is that you do not have even coverage that way, and that's not a way to guarantee even coverage, and it paints the picture of the necessity of using precisely calibrated equipment because that is bad, bad, bad advice.
2: Agreed. We can do better with this, especially if we're applying this much fertilizer. All right.
0: I promise you pros do not do that. Okay.
2: Go on with your bad self any of this one
3: of the most frequent questions i get about the fall nitrogen blitz is how much fertilizer do i need to put down and how do i calculate it i recommend putting down 0.5 pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet every two weeks if you have a decent to good looking lawn if your lawn's in really rough shape i'd recommend throwing it down every week that doesn't mean put down 0.5
2: so again just to clarify that 0.5 pounds of actual nitrogen Every two weeks, if you have a quote-unquote good to decent lawn. And if you have a thin lawn, that's to be 0.5 pounds of actual nitrogen per 1,000 square feet per week. All right, let's play it here. Let's continue on the timing piece.
3: Five pounds of product per 1,000 square feet. That's just how much nitrogen we want to put down. To calculate actual pounds on the ground, we're going to use a simple calculation. Say we want to put down 0.5 pounds of nitrogen per 1,000 square feet of ammonium sulfate. What we're gonna do is we're gonna divide 0.5 by the nitrogen content in that bag. Since ammonium sulfate is a 2100, that means it's 21% nitrogen. So we're gonna divide 0.5 divided by 0.21, and that's going to give us 2.38 pounds of product we need per thousand square feet. That's actually
2: good stuff. Good way to show it. If we have a
3: 6,000 square foot lawn, we need to multiply 2.38 times six. That's gonna give us 14.28 pounds, which we need to spread over the lawn evenly. As soon as I notice my grass is done growing for the season, I stop the fall nitrogen blitz. There's no need to put down more on after this. The grass should have everything it needs to come back crazy strong in the spring and have a great green up. And what's even crazier is that even by putting down this much nitrogen, you can still get your grass much darker green. All you have to do is follow the steps I give you in this video right. right here.
0: Man, that's the part you cannot leave Yeah. Where's that coming where from? That? I don't know where that came from.
2: That was Ray. Ray, That's Ray's in noise. Ray's in the air raid shelter right now. Ray,
0: Ray, Ray's in a truck. Cover your, cover your head. Uh, there, there's something specific about that. Okay, so he said when the grass stops growing, stop applying. Okay? Um, here's the problem. Is that I am cutting grass here in, in East Tennessee until Christmas because it is still growing until Christmas. I may be cutting every 10 days at Christmas, and uh, and really, really, it could stand a cut or two probably in January. If that is the case, if that is the case, I'm gonna be somewhere four, four and a half pounds of nitrogen in the fall.
2: Why, Demay? Why? I don't know, I don't know. So let's start here and let's let's understand what we're talking about here. So we've we've talked about uh, what lawn life and the fifty-four or so thousand people that watched that video so far in the last four days, which is frightening. That part to me is frightening. That this is man, that getting, is that's bad. That's getting that kind of reach. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, from a scientific. This is going to be uh, whiteboardish, Matt. We'll go through this together. All right, we're going to get through it. So uh, typical growth curve here on a cool season. Uh, grass, right? We go into fall time, we're getting uh, significantly higher shoot growth than we have all summer. We all know that, right? Not quite as much as what we would get in the spring, but it's certainly shooting pretty good. Also getting a lot of root growth at this time too. So you can see here as we go into November, December, this sort of tails off a little bit uh, as we transition towards about Thanksgiving time, top growth sort of ceases. Root growth is still taking place at this time, right? And so this has always been what people have said is like, You want to make that late season application, uh, you know, as late as you possibly can. And that was sort of the professional method of doing this was, hey, go out there about Thanksgiving, Matt, even down by you near Christmas, right? Make that last big slug of nitrogen go out and you'll have a green lawn all winter and a green lawn next spring. Okay, so a, a couple of things have happened here. In the ensuing uh time since the late sixties when this whole thing came out and was uh was made dogma within the industry okay the first thing that took place was uh Michigan state a guy by the name of kevin Frank uh did a ton of research that was established even before he got to Michigan state where they basically have uh plots lawn plots that are out there at the research center that were established uh back in the very early nineties like between eighty nine and ninety one And they put lysimeters in the ground. Lysimeter is just kind of like a big cylinder that sits down inside the soil and catches leachate, anything that comes through there, so that they can measure it and doesn't go all the way down into the ground. Okay? So these studies have been out there now. Uh, I I think they're actually still going, but uh, they wrote a report on this uh, to look at Kentucky bluegrass lawns in particular and the fate of nutrients that are applied to those, right? They did a couple different ways here, and J. Pink. Go ahead and throw up. Uh, let me see here. That is going to be the first picture I, or I sent you here. The green chart. That little table up. The green chart. And we'll take a look at this one here. So they had two different, uh, two different um, uh, runs that they were doing here between a high rate and a low rate. The high rate for the first uh, five years of the study was um, five pounds of nitrogen per 1,000 square feet per year. The low rate was two pounds. So you can see here, these are our lysimeter numbers, what they're picking up in the terms of uh, nitrate in the water. Once we get into like year three and upwards of year four and five on those high rates, we're getting uh, rates of uh, nitrate in the water and the leachate here that are far above what are allowable for us to even have, right? So they made the decision in 2003, after 2003, that they needed to back that down. So you'll see that the data here, we go from 25 parts per million, 30 parts per million in 2002, 2003, and they cut that rate down to four pounds as the ceiling, as the high rate, and it immediately started to drop. All the while, you know, the high that we've ever had, highest we've ever had here on the low rate, is about two pounds per, or, or excuse me, two parts per million, all the way up to about six parts per million. So, the point being here is that in a mature lawn, we need less nitrogen. For it to actually work right and not leach okay so they're getting good acceptable turf quality even on the low rate but we have far less in leachate that's coming out of here okay so that's that's slide number one now let's go ahead over here and talk about matt our uh not our good friend but we certainly do admire uh doug soldat up at the university of wisconsin mm-hmm. uh who this is actually still from Kevin Frank's work, but we'll take a look at this real quick. Interesting here is that uh, this is them sampling each individual part of the plant, right? So clippings, verdure, thatch, roots, soil, and leachate. So they're looking at the entire system here. And if you take the average of all of their 15 years of data, you'll notice that we're recovering less total nitrogen out of the high rate than we are out of the low rate, which means our low rate plots are using the nitrogen more efficiently, right? And if you go look at that too, we've still got more captured in soil. We've got um less in roots, but we've got more up here inside of our plants and less in the leachate. So, all things considered, I think uh we're showing that in a long-term study that less nitrogen, especially in mature lawns, not necessarily in new lawns, but in uh, the, I think they they said the breaking point here, the Michigan State study was about 10 years, okay? So, let's jump over here to soil that stuff. And the thing we want to look at there Jay Ping is let's start with uh that chart that says e t for Madison, Wisconsin so Doug Soldat and his team up at Wisconsin said, Hey, you know what, why is this like this? Why do we do this big late season push for nitrogen and um is there any reason behind the madness right? We've seen some work that suggests that you know as we get later later in the season, nitrogen use does not uh become uh, any better, so why would we put more down later in the season? So, when they go to examine this, here's what they find out is that you know, we, we've known for uh, as long as turf grass science has been a thing that the way that uh, nitrogen enters the plant is through a process called mass flow, which means water goes in through the roots and it gets taken up and used by the plant. That's about how 90 plus percent of the nitrogen gets in the plant. That all being said, as we go through the fall time here, and this is what this is showing, is how much water is actually being used by the plant as it dries down from the soil and has it uh, uh, transpires water and uses it in there. So what we find here, Matt and Ray, is that this application that's made on nine fifteen, as compared to, uh, I think they made their second one on uh, October 15th and then again on uh, November 15th. We had a loss, okay? We took 80, about 80% of the nitrogen up in the September app. We took about 19% of the nitrogen up in the October app and we took about 11% of the nitrogen up in that November app so we went from 80 and in two months time in Madison Wisconsin we went all the way down to 11% so this whole idea that hey if we're going to just keep pumping out a half pound half pound half pound where's it going Kevin Frank's already answered where it's going it's going in the ground boys it ain't going to the plant and it's not coming back the next year because the interesting thing here that uh, dr soldat and his team did was they said hey let's just make sure that this stuff's not hanging around until like next spring you know that it's not somehow you know just leaching out and it's gone that's what we think is happening but let's just check they did and they had single digits of stuff that was captured that following spring so the point here being is that this fall nitrogen blitz is a made-up thing it's made up by somebody who didn't understand the science behind it to start it was been perpetuated by people that say, "Hey, if I put more fertilizer down, my grass gets greener." Well, no shit, Sherlock. That's what's going to happen. Up to a point but what up to well, a but point, what point? <laughs> at what point?: At what point? are you mm-hmm. doing this? At what point are you doing this and causing harm and, wreak, and wreaking havoc, right, if you're on the what was that uh, what was that term, uh, Matt the nit- nitrogen terror train? Yes, the, uh, that, <laughs> that was what term. I read. That's the nitrogen term. terror train. So, yeah, so the, for the people that think that they need to have some type of, uh, you know, I, I, and maybe this is maybe I'm overanalyzing this, but, you know, people that want to have a nice lawn and do this in the fall, how would they do this? Simply put, and if you follow what uh, Dr. Soldat and his research team will say, is go out sometime if you're in a cool season area here in the Midwest, the Northeast, throw out a half a pound of nitrogen. And if you want to uh, put a little bit of it slow release, up to 50%, go for it. But that's really all you need. Everything else will take care of itself, and you'll you'll be fine. If you want to get real particular about it, you can spoon feed. I think as uh, the gentleman here suggested, you know, spray it, spoon feed it out, but reduce your rates and increase your uh, frequencies a little bit, uh excuse me, decrease your frequencies a little bit as we go further and further into the year as the plant is taking up less and less nitrogen. So, all that to say, hopefully uh, this was put out in, in in good taste of trying to help people out. I think it overgeneralized way too much. It's another uh, symptom of this oversimplification of lawn care that, hey, paint it with a broad brush and big enough brush and you'll get a whole lot of views and everything like that. And if you want to have, you know, pretty stripes and dark colors and, you know, flex your big dick energy out there in the lawn, fucking great, but please stop doing it in the wrong way and follow the science. Thank you very much. This has been your edition of this week's Joe Knows Turf.
0: Uh... That was incredible, and uh, and I hope everyone that watches this that subscribes to that uh, idea of a, of a fall nitrogen blitz takes into consideration everything that was put forth there. Uh, gentlemen, we are way over time, so we're going to have to do a shortened segment of this week's Burns and Returns, uh, but let's go ahead and take a look at this week's Burns. Life.
2: Yes, in up her quickly,
0: yeah, uh, boy had a lot to say there, didn't she? I was like, listen, you you sometimes you just need to calm down, take a chill pill, relax, my goodness, she was uh, yelling at me, ah, uh. uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> In Ohio, uh, why this is a burn is going to be a little bit funny here, but uh, uh, Tessenderlo Curley held a celebratory groundbreaking to mark the commencement of construction of a new liquid fertilizer facility in Defiance, Ohio. Uh, The 50,000-square-foot production facility will occupy 50 acres and is set to become operational in 2024. This is good. This is a good thing. However, what's going to be coming out of here are going to be things like thiosol, uh, potassium thiosulfate, KRO23, as well as sulfite chemistries for the industrial market. Uh, For those of you who don't know why this is a problem, it's not going to help anybody in lawn care. Uh, In ag, they're going to be able to get away with this for drilling it purposes. Uh, However, if you're in lawn care and this is being forced down your throat, I'm gonna warn you right now that if a lawn care if, if a company's forcing this down your throat for lawn care, um, they are probably not interested in your success. Uh, the reason why is that a lot of these materials are so caustic in nature that it's really really, really easy to burn. See uh, the word I'm looking for there would be like salt index or something of the sort. Uh, Although they do have an acidifying effect, which specifically for Ohio would be good. So this makes sense that it would be good and and well-situated in Ohio. What doesn't make sense is that oftentimes this is pushed on lawn care as if it's something that's applicable when most of the time it's not. I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but most of the time it's not. Uh, The second thing is is that oftentimes uh, KTS, uh, potassium thiosulfate, ammonium thiosulfate is all going to be a byproduct of the production of acetaminophen. And uh, so it's amazing to me that there are companies that are able to build and flourish in this just selling the waste product of acetaminophen production when, uh, you know, we all know they have just about zero dollars invested in it. So anyway, that's why that is a burn. Um, that was I don't know if hey. I should have let out that much at the end there, but I did.
2: <laughs> hey, <laughs> let them live. We'll let, we'll, things. We'll, we'll let them live for now. All right. Now, moving on. Boy
0: uh the second one here is sludge containing forever chemicals promoted for harm home gardens boys it's just we're never going to get away from it are we i mean it's it is uh but but you know what other people are catching on and and so again we're just going here bags of the earthy muck oh golly when does this why does this always do this to me uh here let me let me open it in this window um the bags of the earthy muck are labeled organic or natural sometimes it is billed as exceptional quality compost industrial uh industry held a nationwide contest years ago and decided to call it biosolids euphemism that beat out black gold uh, geoslime and humanure Uh, No matter how it's described, the humus-like material distributed to gardeners, neighborhood groups, and landscapers by the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District is still sewage sludge, a byproduct of human excrement and industrial waste from Chicago and the Cook County suburbs. Uh, Gardeners are encouraged to grow vegetables and leafy greens in the sludge-based compost. Uh, District officials promote the truckloads they donate to community gardens in low-income or predominantly black neighborhoods, and the piles they leave outside sewage treatment plants are for anyone to shovel into buckets or their pickup beds. People collect free compost from the Stickney Water Reclamation Plant on uh, May 17th, 2022, according to a little picture here that I can't see because I'm doing this. However, it comes to find out that these have PFAS in them for the most part. Uh, and so it goes on to talk about this, uh, MWRD scientists are among the authors of a 2011 study that worries some levels of forever chemicals in the district sludge, along with EPA researchers participate in the 2013 tomato, tomato and lettuce study. Despite the use of scientific jargon and industry legal throughout the letter paper, the conclusion is clearly stated. These results may have important impl- impl- implications in respect to the potential routes of PFAS exposure to humans who might have repeatedly used sludge to fertilize their home gardens. So um, there's there's no regulatory guidance on this. It is it's really unknown, and uh, and the 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 thing is is that we don't have all the data we need, and uh, and and I don't mean from the standpoint data we need as far as like uh, human health concerns. We don't have the data we need to have real time, uh, uh, whether it's monthly testing or whatever the case may be, to allow us to make the kind of decisions we need. Again, I would encourage anybody that's using biosolids out there i've said it before i'll say it again. Go to whoever supplies you your biosolids, whether that be a distributor like one of the big boys or it be a small regional distributor or you buy direct from one of these uh wastewater treatment facilities and ask them to show you the data exactly how much is in it and uh and and what what how Contaminated with PFAS is, are these biosolids that I'm applying. And then you have to take into account how many you have applied and, uh, and whether you're going to continue doing it or not, because this is a long-term problem that, uh, we're not going to be able to get our way out of simply by just pretending like it doesn't exist. Demay, I, I want to bring this up to you here is that one of our, uh, one of our patrons actually did reach out to their supplier and asked about this. Oh, really? Yes, and the supplier said, basically, it's nothing you need to be concerned about
2: <laughs> Wait, is this like the uh you know the uh the cigarette companies the the, the tobacco companies in the sixties and seventies Oh no, you can't get addicted to it, and it's fine. you know hell doctors do it right? It can't be that bad for you I don't know uh, I just think if, if you're not recognizing the groundswell that's taking place right now, don't get caught flat footed. Get this stuff out and not because we're raging uh, environmentalists. I agree that, you know, if if I knew that something like this even was a possibility, I'd want to, you know, uh, distance myself from that pretty darn quickly.
0: Just get out in front of it, whether you agree with it or not. I
2: promise you, the further
0: out in front of it you are, uh, the better off you're going to be because you can make educated decisions while you're out there. And whatever decision you decide to make, you can feel good about supporting. Whether that means you continue to use it or you don't continue to use it, you are at least armed with the data to be able to say why. Um, uh, The $1 billion effort to fight African hunger put farmers in debts. In debt and poisons the soil, critics say. All right, and this gets kind of spicy here, but I figure we go ahead and at least touch on it. A billion-dollar philanthropic effort promising a green revolution for African agriculture has fallen far short of its goals, according to critics who say the project has yielded more harm than good for local farmers and crops. The AGRA, also known as the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, launched in 2006 largely through funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is facing backlash from environmental activists and farmers for alleged uh, industrial practices that have released poisonous chemicals into the soil and put some farmers in debt by requiring costly seeds, pesticides, and fertilizers, per the Seattle Times. Uh, The controversial implementations, which have uh, reportedly resulted in some indebted farmers selling their land and belongings, as well as committing suicide, were termed the second phase of colonization by Kenyan ecologist activist Celestine uh, Otieno. Uh, Agra, co-founded by the Rockefeller Foundation, aims to reduce hunger and increase agricultural productivity by planting high-yielding seeds using chemical fertilizers and promoting new environmental research methods across Africa, according to the outlet. The alliance this week will begin a rebranding campaign amid increased scrutiny following a donor-funded evaluation in December 2021 that found the project did not meet its headline goal of increased incomes and food security. Changes will include Agra's uh, official title no longer using the term Green Revolution, a decades-old movement implemented in multiple countries to mix successes and failures, according to the Seattle Times. Among the benefits of Agra found in December evaluations were higher-yielding corn crops across roughly half the countries analyzed. Additionally, Agra President Agnes uh, uh, Calabata said the project has held upwards of eight Upwards of 800 Africans earned master's and doctorate degrees in agriculture as reported by the outlet. However, Calabata and other project leaders have credited climate change as the main reason the initiative has thus far fallen short, as well uh, as many have struggled to combat the impacts of consecutive drought seasons that were severely harm farms uh, without access to irrigation systems. In Africa today, the majority of counties uh, are, are dealing are already living in a one-degree warmer world. Um, and then it, it goes on and on and on I'll, I'll read this last little bit here. Panelists criticize agro staff and board of directors whose members include prominent African leaders, such as former prime minister, of Ethiopia, uh, alleging the corporations that sell seeds, fertilizers, and pesticides, uh, farmers rely on annually are the ones truly running the show. When will you stop pushing for these green revolution models that have failed a national coordinator for the biodiversity and biosafety association of Kenya during the conference? All right. Now there's a lot to kinda of unpack here and there's a lot to read between the lines, right? Because you've on one instance you've got the hardcore environmentalists that say anything that ends in coal as in chemical or anything that ends in side as in pesticide or anything that ends in zer as in fertilizer is inherently bad. Right. And I, I just I, I I do not believe that the um, the Agra, even though it was, you know, if they're going to point at this and say the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is trying to kill the environment. I don't think so. Uh, I think they are legitimately interested in broadening the scope of agricultural education that occurs in Africa. And I think that's a, that actually a wonderful thing that has taken place there um, to expose more Africans to. Uh, the, uh, the, the types of agricultural methods that have allowed us to thrive and prosper for a population of how many billions of people we have on the planet now. And for these people that are pretending like what's going on is, is uh, for the most part, bad, what they need to remember is that if we simply fertilized with manure or waste streams alone, we could only feed 4 billion people. That's it. Just 4 billion people. And somehow we've managed to feed, what, 9 billion people? And that's not by accident. That's through the methods that are likely being taught to the Africans that are participating in this program. So to point at it and say that it's inherently bad is, in my opinion, very short-sighted and and a a terrible take. I think that's just a shitty take. Now, if you want to say that money's been mismanaged, it hasn't been applied appropriately, it's too fat at the top, okay, probably, probably without a doubt if there's if that's uh, believed to be occurring it's probably occurring uh but i don't think that points at this as a program and makes it
2: of the devil does that do my am i talking crazy or does that make sense no it is i just think i i, I think we're in this space right now that <sighs> this is the other side of this right is that uh, let's 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 uh mash up A previous article with what we were talking about with Canada, Europe, and South America with Africa, right? And they're so far behind on the traditional methods, right? How are we going to, you know, how do we merge and skip ahead, you know, several chapters and go from, you know, what little, you know, knowledge, infrastructure, everything like that, that they do have, right? On a relative basis, right? To... Hey, now you're going to be, you know, uh, there's just a lot of stuff that's got to happen, man. And uh, I don't know this, this part of it where, you know, what are we teaching and how is this stuff that they're going to need to forget in 10 years? And are we right back in the same place when we figure out maybe that some of the stuff that we're teaching them, oh man, that's really bad. Like, you know, we're not doing that in Canada. We're not doing that in North America, South America, you know, Europe anymore, but here for the last 10 years, we've been teaching Dogwin bullshit to people in Africa, and now we got to start all over again. So that whole part of it, the political, the greasing of hands and kickback, like you can't tell me that shit's not happening. I'm just sorry. I, maybe, maybe I'm... I'm uh, maybe it's, I am it's being... It's happening. Too, you know it's yeah, happening. Yeah, I was I, Exactly. So take it for what it's worth. It looks pretty in paper, and it'll probably be a burn for uh, a, a good long while. So... uh you just put a new log on the fire mat, we'll see how long it burns for.
0: As I was going to say, if anybody's here to talk shit about it, that's definitely us. We will armchair quarterback the holy hell out of it because, well, we can. Uh, let's check out this week's returns. <inaudible> la, la, la,
1: la, 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 la.
0: We're gonna to try to be optimistic here, although it is clear the government has officially clipped Ray, and uh, and for that we could be <laughs> pessimistic, and uh, but somehow we'll, we'll get it all figured out. The good news is, is this out of the AgriLife today of good old TAMU? Uh listen, I absolutely love Texas A&M uh, because uh, we we keep seeing these types of things come out of uh, of Texas A&M. And I feel like, you know, to, you, Texas, you either love it or hate it, right? I love it because, you know, growing up, it was always, it was either it's it's Texas or it's Tennessee, right? And uh, and so, you know, to, to see strong things coming out of the University of Tennessee turf grass program right now that arguably wasn't this time, you know, 20 years ago, and to see the great things coming out of Texas A&M in regards to turf grass that arguably wasn't 20 years ago, this is this is really exciting. And it's the outreach perspective here. Uh, Two turfgrass students on an all-female Little League softball grounds crew. Uh, Sometimes the education that takes place off campus is the most memorable and life-changing. Haley Tucker and Megan uh, Mues, Mues, both sophomore students enrolled in the turfgrass sciences program at the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences at uh, Texas A&M College of Agricultural and Life Sciences, got an opportunity of a lifetime recently when they were selected to be part of an all-female grounds crew for the Little League softball World Series, the LLSWS in North Carolina. Tucker is in her second year in the Turfgrass Science program, and M- Muezi Muse is in her first year as a Turfgrass Science student, with her freshman year started as a Plant and Environmental Soil Science major. Uh, the students work at the Turfgrass Research Lab for Weston Floyd, a research specialist, Chase Straw, PhD, Texas A&M Agri- uh, AgriLife Research Turfgrass Scientist and Assistant Professor, both in the Department of School and Crop Sciences. Floyd and Straw helped the young women get this opportunity to attend and work on the LLSWS grounds crew where they spent four days gaining field staff experience and making connections in the industry. We strive to put our Turfgrass Science students in situations that will benefit them outside the classroom to gain hands-on experience and network with professionals across the industry. Haley have taken full advantage of these opportunities early in the undergraduate career and will no doubt benefit uh, benefit them after, uh, after graduation. And then it goes on to uh, actually have a little bit of an interview with him, and I highly recommend you read it and, and actually dive a little bit into their minds uh, as women in the turf grass industry. Because for a long time, this has been an industry, I call it, I call it a fraternity and uh and that's not because i think it should be exclusive uh, uh, exclusively male it's because it has been male for so long and and you know definitely in my career uh coming up in this industry i never i've i've seen one woman uh that did tree and shrub applications across my x number of years that i've been in it at this point and uh and so to see young people especially young women Uh, expressing an interest in this and especially at the professional level is incredibly exciting. So kudos to these girls for uh, doing the damn thing, especially at something as, uh, as awesome as the little league softball world series. I think that's fantastic.
2: Hey, always up for people entering the industry and doing so with uh, pride and zeal. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very cool event that they had down there. And I think again, uh, it, it, if nothing else, it, it it points people to the idea that uh, this is a a a job, a career. It's not uh, the kind of stuff that mom and dad normally see and say. You want to wait, wait. You you want to go to college to grow grass? Really?
1: Yep, yep.
2: I got yeah. So.
1: Hey,
0: we're we're slowly we're slowly changing, we're slowly evolving. But what's important is that we are evolving, and uh, and that's going to be again, you know, the, what's necessary for our industry to uh, to, to to thrive. Uh, our next one here, Atlee Football plays on award-winning field, courtesy of Raiders Turfgrass Program. Hiya, you'd be hard pressed to find a more patriotic end zone design than that of the Atlee Raiders. Uh, a star-studded A and T transition into half stars, half stripes, L before red and white stripes and blazing both E's, even down to the stars and stripes yardage markers. The detail of the field work is something any team would be proud to play on. And it's all courtesy of the high school's turfgrass program, co-founded in 01 by Virginia Tech grad and athlete teacher, Mark Moran. I believe we've talked about this program before. Moran and his mm-hmm. student's design uh, uh, originally conceptualized for the program's 2021 homecoming game. Over the summer, it was awarded first place among national field that included minor league baseball teams and universities in the Sports Field Management Association Annual Stars and Stripes Conversations. SFMA is a nonprofit that manages facilities at schools, colleges, universities, parks, and recreational uh, centers, and professional sports stadiums across the United States. Atlee Stars and Stripes Design garnered more than 500 votes. People assume you go out there with a big old stencil and make it happen, and that's not the way. Moran said the process behind bringing the life to life uh bringing the, the design to life adding that he helped with the concept but his students did all the hands-on work. It takes a lot of time to plan out. It's really a community community-based program and it's fun to see kids take pride in what they're doing. And it goes on about this and I think even more so than just a a community building program, it builds a certain amount of uh dema <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to say this as ridiculous as as possible. There's something about the guys that you absolutely, or, or girls up to this point, I say guys just because that's all I experience in the industry, but the guys you get out there and you grind with day in and day out, you develop a certain amount of mutual respect for because you know they have tolerated the same level of intensity. They've performed at the same level of intensity that you have over the season and and that that kind of camaraderie as a result of it you don't i i don't know maybe you do experience in other industries and i just haven't worked in enough of them to see but it definitely builds a certain level of camaraderie and it builds a lasting impression and a lasting uh, it's 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 such a team concept that that pushes each person to their to their limits that uh it's i don't know it's an amazing experience just the camaraderie aspect of it And, and again i use the term fraternity because that's exactly what it feels like in in essence
2: no i agree, I, you mean, agree? I, think, okay. I agree and i think that for for these kids to have the opportunity to do it in a uh you know a, a space where they're not getting paid for it. and i don't mean that they're being taken advantage of but i mean where they can actually learn like where the whole pur- purpose is not like hey we got to stay out in front of the golfers today hey we got to do a thousand dollars on this truck today hey you know um you know the first pitch is at seven o'clock, and we we can 't really teach it a whole lot. Their sole job in going into these classes is to learn and be taught and make mistakes and everything like that and it 's a great place to do it and even if there's only you know if there's if there's thirty kids in this program and you know three of them a year want to go into turf school I, I think that's great i you know it's so I think this is what we need you know at a high school level to to show people and show. Uh, adults and their uh, loved ones, parents, uh, teachers, guidance counselors that th- there, uh, there is, uh, you know, rewarding work here, both on an intrinsic level and an extrinsic level, right? So, uh, hopefully more and more of this will be coming. Uh, I know there's several programs here that are similar in Ohio that, uh, and, and it looks to be growing too. So, uh, hey, I'm all about people, you know, buying into the industry, jumping on in with two feet, Matt, and, uh, being the leaders of tomorrow when we all uh, get clipped by the government,
0: it, it it won't be long, and we'll all be dead, and uh, and we'll. Have but it'll to be have slow and torturous. Kids. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, for us it will be, but you know, yeah, probably yeah. deservedly. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for all the pain I've caused to so many people. Uh, a review of the tall fescue fungicide trials in 2022. Lee Butler of NC State University has finally. I'd say finally, has released an updated review of fungicide efficacy trials on various diseases in tall fescue. I love the data that comes out of NC State. I love their turf files. And, uh, and this is just another uh, a great perspective of uh, things you can expect, especially in the North Carolina area. I would say this would apply for the most part to the majority of areas in the transition zone. And, uh, and what's interesting, too, is that they're already starting to tease some uh, experimental sprayable products here. And uh, and with to varying degrees of efficacy because, uh, you know, not everything's going to be a home run. And we'll see what ends up being released and what doesn't end up being released. If I had to guess of these experimental uh, uh, types of products, we're going to... Um, these might fall into the microbial category, and this is going to be kind of like the things we saw out of Ag Biome uh, when they when they started to come out with their uh, uh, um, bacteria or mm. or whatever mm. pseudomonas I can't even remember what it is uh, type of, uh, of of fungicide. And uh, so, anyway, something to keep an eye on, especially for uh, professional applicators that are out there. Something you can quick reference right here and see what's going on. Go ahead, Deme.
2: Hey, did, did you see in those results? Could you tell me how uh, humic acid and, and super juice fared? Where'd those end up on the table?
0: Um, is it non-treated control? <laughs> <sighs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, and if you don't believe me, try it yourself. And uh, because that's something I have done a significant amount of because at one time before it was humic acid, it was Sumagro. Before it was Sumagro, it was ICT Organics. Uh, after ICT Organics and Sumagro it was uh it was whatever the guys that would install the refrigerator um the, the people <laughs> yeah. that pretend organics. like uh yeah hoganics uh, the people that pretend like this is new technology can shove it right up their ass because people have been chasing the specific bacillus bacteria that's going to change the world since at least the 80s uh, and, and if I recall correctly in the early eighties, uh, that was like the dream was that you had this bug in a jug that was going to change everything. And it's just recycled reiteration after recycle reiteration is that, Oh, maybe you don't supply the actual bug. You supply the things that feed the bugs kind of sort of deal. And apparently humic acid feeds the bugs, which I'm not seeing a whole lot of data that shows that either, but it's neither here nor there. Um, okay. Uh, for the mailbag, uh, Andy, we have run way too long. Um, I have I have listened to the people you have suggested here. And boy, oh boy, I'm gonna do you one better. I'm not just going to talk about Gabe Brown and Joel Salatin. We are in the midst of talking to a farmer right now that actually subscribes and implements. These types of organic methods pitched by Gabe Brown and Joel Salatin. And we are going to do an entire Thirsty Thursday episode with this guy. And uh, and so the amount of data that we're going to be compiling and the amount of data that he's going to be bringing, because this is a uh, a multi-decade farmer that's coming so i'm sure he's going to be bringing the thunder and uh and i i promise you we're going to be bringing the thunder too and it's going to be from two different perspectives because one comes from agriculture the other comes from turf grass and uh and we're going to have an absolute great show of it so andy bear with us you are not forgotten you are uh in fact you are prioritized in a big big way we've never had a guest on just to appease one comment before so Uh, Thank you all for tuning in. We are going to go hang out with the uh, – we've got Ben the Lawn Guardian coming up on Thursday, Thursday. Right now, we're going to go hang out with our patrons, patreon.com, forward slash burner return, and let them pick this week's title of the episode. For those of you that don't know, we have a live show coming up. It's going to be a live meetup, meet meet-and-greet. We're going to be doing that in Louisville, Kentucky at the same dates of the uh, Green Industry Expo, except we're going to be doing that off-campus at our own little facility where where it's it's going to be an amazing deal it's not just a meet and greet we're actually doing a live recording of burn and return there uh, it's a big deal we got dinner we got drinks it's 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 a legit production that we put on and it's an opportunity to get to know us as the human beings not just the people behind the microphones that get up here and ramble or that get clipped by the government from time to time love you ray all right we're out of here patreon.com slash burn and return if you can or of the means if not no problem we still love you Uh, To the patrons.